Hello and welcome to CigarCast, your weekly one-stop shop for all things cigar-related, including industry news, reviews, and everything in between. We're recording live from Mission Cigar and Social here in Spring Hill, Tennessee. I'm one of your hosts, Trey Debman. I'm joined by a man who makes Marty Scorsese look like Marty Feldman, Mr. Shane Reeves. You're referring to my taste in cinema. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Okay, so while I talk about my cigar... And you get ready to light yours and all. I need you to think about something. Okay. If I had a pack of 70 hippos that I needed moved out of Brazil, what would you charge ahead? We're we're moving them to where? Just anywhere but here. Well, no, you just got to get them to the dock. Okay. And then I'll have ships that'll take them to wherever they're going to go. I got a herd of 160 hippos. I need 70 of them picked up. I don't care what sex. It's really hard to sex a hippo. First, you got to buy her dinner. <laughs> but, so I don't care. I just want 70 hippos in good working order to go to zoos all over the country. You get them from the hippo lake to there. I need to know 30 miles, 40 miles. Um, Let's say 100. 100 miles. Let's say 100. Let's, let's make it liberal because I know the quote that the Brazilian government got, and I think they're getting ripped off. Uh, 10 grand a head. See, that's that's what I said earlier. I said, <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm like Earl Shive. I can move any hippo for ten grand a head. That's right. And our Brazilian government is going to pay three and a half million dollars to four million dollars to move seventy hippos, and they're going to ship them to India and Mexico and all that to go in zoos. But the cocaine hippos, the Pablo right. Escobar cocaine hippos. Yeah. So first and foremost, I think they're getting radically overcharged for moving hippo. So that's seventy three and a half million to four million on fifty seven, grand a hippo. Fifty, yeah, fifty grand a head seems like way. I mean, you get a big cage, you get a door, you bait it with an orphan. How much more could you need to catch hippos? A couple of trank darts. I see. Somebody else was going the trank dart route. I don't think you could trank them. No, I think you have to have it in in reserve. I don't think that's plan A. I, I think that's half of my staff has been killed. Now we got to break out the trank darts. Oh, see, now my plan B was a, you know, a, a 50 30 nitro. Or <laughs> yeah, a nitro 50, an elephant gun. And say he gets a little frisky, I blow his head off. And then I go, you know, I got 160 hippos. I only got to bring can, 70 home. <laughs> you're making an omelet. You can break a few eggs. That's right. I'm, I'm, while he gets a little spicy, I'm going to blow his head off and let the others Why know. Why don't we submit a, a bid for 25 grand a head and you and I go down there and sort this out? And take care of hippos. That's right. <laughs> but, but I... First and foremost, I think they're getting ripped off on their per hippo price. Second, I think that, okay, only taking 70 of the hippos, because so these cocaine hippos, for those that don't want caught up, um, Trey, tell them about your cigar. I'm going to light my cigar. And then I, <laughs> okay. Because I, I, I don't want to launch into cocaine hippos without a cigar in my fair, hand. That's a fair point. At all. You, you've got a Caldwell. I do. This is the 15 Minutes of Fame from the Lost and Found series. Uh the the other shop I go to has brought these in, and, and it's been a, a topic of conversation for a couple of weeks, and I've seen them in here, and I'm not a Lancero fan. I've talked about it on the show. I've talked about it to anybody who will listen. I don't like Lanceros. The margin for error is just way too great. In my life, I've probably smoked, let's say, let's say 20 Lanceros, and I've enjoyed about four of them. So I'm an 80% failure rate at this point. But 
I wanted to do something a little different. The price is right at nine bucks for a Lancero. That's pretty incredible. So, and it's from it's from Caldwell of all places to have a cigar in that price point. So it's a Habano wrapper over Sumatran binder and Nicaraguan and Dominican long fillers. I like the recipe. I like the price. I'm I like the manufacturer. Uh, you know, this the only thing this doesn't have going for it for me is the size and the shape. So I figured I would look the other way on that. That's the price a Lancero should be. This is what I like about that cigar is it's nine bucks, mm-hmm. eight, nine bucks. That's the price a Lancero should be. If you want me to smoke your Lancero, don't charge me more for it than the Toro or the Gordo. Now, I understand it takes more skill to roll a Lancero. <laughs> Which we'll talk more about later in the right. show. Well, and we'll cover this later in the show to a greater degree. But I think the number one thing that cigar's got going for it is the price. Um, it's not a bad cigar. I've smoked several of them. It's also, I would say, coming from the Caldwell factory. Caldwell is a cigar nerd cigar. You know, the... They, from the top down, are just absolute cigar nerds. And I feel like if I can trust anybody to get the Lancero right, it should be them. I hate to say it, but I have to be completely honest with everybody listening. If the guy that was the Caldwell rep was not somebody that I really, really liked and really enjoy spending time with, and one of my friends even long before he became the Caldwell rep, I don't know how into Caldwell I'd be. Yeah. You know, by and large, I am not a huge fan of their price point in the humidor for the quality of the cigar. But that being said, last night I smoked my second Toro Deluxe in the Blind Man's Bluff line. And it was just as good as the first one I had. You know, at at twelve fifty or something like that MSRP, it's it's a little up there for that line, but it's good. And, you know, I, I pretty much only smoke the Blind Man's Bluff line from them, but I do really enjoy it. Well, the Nicaraguan is excellent. It is. So I'm smoking the LFD Suave. So interesting path to get here with LFD. So we were sitting in here one day, Mark and I, and a gentleman that works at another cigar store was in here. And Mark said, well, the LFD guy's coming in here later, and do you think anything we need? And I said, well, what does it matter? They're, you know, It'll or, be a year before we see yeah, it anyway. Ordering from them such a crapshoot. And the guy said, well, have y'all ever smoked the Suave? And I said, no, never smoked Suave. I didn't even know. I never heard of the Suave. Well, he said, yeah, he said, you're a trout. Well, the, the rep gets here, and surprise, surprise, he has a couple of Suaves with him. Oh. Uh, smoked them. Excellent. Loved it. And so, even bigger surprise, they had them in stock. Oh, wow. Within three days of smoking the Suave, we had Suave in the humidor. That's unheard of from them. So the Suave is LFD's first blend. Mm. It's a long time. I knew it was an older blend when I smoked it. Look how dark that wrapper it's is. very dark. But this is a mild cigar. Yeah. This is, the, this is the quintessential cigar that will fool you. You see that rich black wrapper and you think, man, this thing's going to just kick my teeth in. And it's just smooth and mild. Especially knowing that LFD has that reputation at this point. Yeah, it's a milder LFD. I yeah. mean, it's even mild for an LFD. And that, that's just amazing. But just a great cigar. So, mm. okay, back to the cocaine hippos. Yeah. 
So Pablo Escobar had six hippos brought in when he was in his heyday as a drug lord. And the when he died, the hippos just stayed in the wild. And turns out Brazil is hippo heaven. Well, there's no natural predator. Lots of vegetation. Lots of climate. water. And they actually found out hippos in the wild of Africa breed about once every two years. These breed twice a year. Wow. <laughs> so these hippos are getting after it. So now there's 160 hippos there. They're, all of their waste is causing algae blooms and killing the fish, and which is causing the villagers to starve, which is... Uh, they're an invasive species. Right. They're, they're an inspaci- invasive megafauna. Right. Which is even worse. So here's the thing. If you're Brazil and you go and get 70 of them, you're not going to do any good. Right. We're, another 10 years, we'll be right back here. Oh, if even that long. Yeah. So, because, you know, if they think there's 160, there's probably more. Yeah, there's probably 260. Right. And so 70 is just going to be a drop in the bucket. So on the front end, they're getting ripped off on their per hippo price. The only thing to do is take the 70, kill the rest. Right. And that's that's a, a terrible thought. Or, or castrate the males. Yeah, no, they tried looking down that route. It's very hard. I would imagine so. <laughs> well, the, the gonads are internal. Gotcha. So it's not like you can just, you know, get access to them. them. Yeah. Right. So so it's very very difficult to tell a male from a female to begin with, let alone to get a... Well, the one on top of the other one is usually a pretty good indication. But then you got to trap the bull. And then you got to... So there's there's way too much involved in trying to... You can't tell me, though, for three and a half to four million dollars that that wouldn't be... (laughs) I would think if it's... If getting 70... Of the population moved off the continent cost four million dollars. I can't imagine that, even as intensive as the castration process is, that it wouldn't be more cost effective. But I guess they did the math and decided it wasn't. Well, yeah, the practicality of it. Yeah, I mean, there's just there's just a lot of things that are not practical about that. You know, the um, it's kind of like you know the most you know what the most effective pesticides pesticides are. No, what. Pesticides that actually mutate the genitalia of the pests. Huh, because that makes if you, sense. if you yeah. just kill them, you double the food supply and they come back twice right. as fast. So you have to breed them out of existence. In sterile, yeah, chemical sterilization, essentially. Well, not even sterilization. It almost has to be a. Um, yeah, I guess it is a sterilization it, 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 yeah. of, short, of yeah. sorts. But anyway, a disfigurement almost. But anyway, so. This has been Animal Talk, <laughs> and now we should talk about a cigar or two. You know my one com- my my big complaint with Lancero. So this one's actually drawing pretty well, which is it's, which is rare. I feel like the first two inches of a Lancero, you don't get anything from it because it's so long that it takes the rest of the tobacco to heat up and to get warm and to start giving you something. I, I'm not really getting a whole lot from this yet. But you know what? I like the cool smoke. It's like smoking a church warden. Yeah. I like the cooler smoke. I'm okay with it ramping up slowly because I get to kind of enjoy that cool, mellow smoke on the front end. So I'm I guess okay I'm just not used to it is, is more to the point. It probably is. So from Cigar Aficionado, North Dakota passes bill allowing cigar lounges. So we discussed this last week, and we were talking about North Dakota, the bill getting all the way to the governor, and would the governor sign it? 
to allow cigar lounges in North Dakota. And he did sign it this week. House Bill 1229 in the law, Governor Doug Burgum. And this allows cigar lounges to do, wants to do business in um, North Dakota. Peace Garden State. I've never heard of it referred to as the Peace Garden I've State. I've never heard that either. That seems like an odd thing to refer to it as, but I guess it's what well, it, I guess Garden State was already taken, so they had to... <laughs> is that the Price is Right rules to giving your state a, a motto? Or, or a nickname? Well, the Garden States are... Well, Peace Garden. Okay. Yeah, clo- closest to the actual item without going over. Right. So, for cigar lounges to qualify for this exemption, they must possess a humidor on the premises, hold a valid certificate issued by the tax commissioner, have a proper ventilation that does not recirculate exhausted air. So, that means you can't filter it. you got to pump it out. Right. Which to me seems less effective. Well, no, that's what the active return and, and exhaust here is what has made a huge difference. Well, yeah, but it seems to me that if you were going, that telling them just to pump it out into the open would be more detrimental than trying to get them to recycle well, it in there. Perhaps. I, it depends on which way you're looking at it from, I think. And also, and here's the part that I really like will not permit smoking of any other materials other than cigars that were purchased on the premises. And we talked about that in the etiquette piece last week about how really you shouldn't be smoking anything but cigars in a cigar lounge anyway. Uh, it's interesting to have that be a piece on a piece of the legislation. Yeah. Hey, Jack Leg, it's the law. You can't. Right. <laughs> you know, and th- that makes sense. It just, I mean, everything about this makes sense. They also talk about how it seems like the scales are turning for the cigar industry in a positive light with the 50 cents limitation on tobacco that we talked about last week, taxes. And we've talked about over the course of the year several different um, different caps on tobacco tax on cigars. Right. So is this the fruition of what we talked about when they first started with all of the FDA stuff, that this would allow us to establish a difference between cigars, cigarettes, and vaping. I I think so. But I I also wonder, you know, you and I stay up on on the cigar legislation because it's important to us and interesting to us. I wonder how much that's affecting these legislators who probably aren't keeping real close eye on that sort of thing. I think you have to. I think when you start talking about taking down, when you start talking about reducing the number of cigars sold, mm-hmm. uh, an item that you're taxing mercilessly, right? That has that has to notice. Yeah, I guess more more of what I'm saying is, you know, this where we've we've kind of crossed the line of demarcation where now we recognize cigars are different from other tobacco products. That absolutely came out of the the FDA regulation and, and all of the issues we've been having with them for since 2013 now. I just wonder how much the the giving cigars a, a different distinction and definition is filtering into local and state politics. Maybe, maybe it, I don't know, maybe the people who are putting these bills forth are cigar folks, and so they're a little more clued in. But I think your your average legislator probably doesn't even know. Well, I can tell you, um, the last Thursday of the month here at the mission, the politicians come in. 
and there's a lot and there's a lot of them come in just to be here with the other politicians they right. may buy a beer they probably don't actually smoke a cigar but it fills the back of this place up yeah. and spring hill's just a little you know podunk oh, yeah. town well yeah so that the big voter base here though that tells you something about what what the politicians and the cigars have going on yeah fair enough and also moving forward, this is from thefacts.com, covering Brazoria County, where Texas began. I didn't know Texas began in Brazoria County. I used to know where Brazoria County is. I think it's down near uh, down near Houston. So I put in the notes that this was right up your alley. Audiences will get wrapped up in the story of Cuban cigar makers. Has there ever been a good movie made about cigars? Not that I've seen. There's been a lot of good accessory cigars in movies. Yes. I mean, Schwarzenegger, virtually all of his, he has a cigar. There's always something. But this is a movie, and it's called Anna in the Tropics. And it's you go back to the 1920s, and it's talking about El Lector, a new elector comes into the cigar factory to read to the rollers while they're rolling, and he starts reading some controversial material to them, and then how it changes their life and their views, and la da. And it sounds like the most boring thing that could possibly be put to film. Um, what's your thoughts? I I think this sounds good, and and I, I you knew I would say that. I I like stories like this where it's a pseudo-historical sort of internal conflict versus external for the most part you know whether or not it's any good you know it's open to interpretation but I would see it but okay what's what could possibly be exciting <laughs> what? I, 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 just, don't I, I just, I, I don't know. I just don't get the hook. I don't get the hook of this movie at all. There's no, there's no grinding issue. There's no major important things happening. This is, it's just people talking about what they think and what they believe and all that. And that just drives that. But, I'd rather put my face in a blender. But movies, the movies I watch at least thrive based on their screenwriting and their dialogue. I know you go to movies for the machine guns and the explosions. Right. I need, I need monsters, I need guns, and I need gratuitous nudity. Yeah. It's a simple formula to make me happy. See, I like I like a story. I like a well-developed story. Preferably not something that meanders, but sometimes if it's a means to an end, that you can still come away with an enjoyable experience. Well... And so here's the question. There's really no way to ever make an exciting cigar movie. I don't think there's anything exciting enough about cigars to make me want to make a movie about it. Well, if we look at the, if we look at the recent um, history of cigars, you know, the, the, the political uprising in Nicaragua that had a minor effect on the cigar industry but could have had a much bigger one... Um, there, there's some meat there. Um, you know, you look back to, you know, the 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 exodus of the Cuban cigar makers during the early embargo. There could be. I love Padron stories. I don't want to. I don't need to know the Padron story. 
I love Padron cigars. I don't need to know the Padron story. So you probably also would hate the movie Tetris. Have you seen that? No. Or heard about it? No. They. I watched this the other night and was actually surprisingly really impressed. I think it was on Apple TV. And it. Taron Edgerton plays um, this guy, Hank something. He, he was basically the guy that brought Tetris out of Russia. Because Tetris was invented in Russia during the height of the USSR, right. Gorbachev, the whole nine yards. And it, it's about, obviously, it's a heightened version of events, but it, it follows the path of a true story behind the licensing and the espionage. And the th- it, was, it was very, very well done. You would have hated it. There wasn't a single gunshot in the whole movie. Uh, there Boops. was a car chase. No boobs. No boobs. No boobs. I'm out. <laughs> I just, I just, there's just no way. It's just not that, not that thing for me. But I, I don't know. I guess I, I probably should, at some point in my life, try to grow up a little. I, I think it would be healthy I, for you. I can, you know, I'm so tired, and I blame you, Trey. <laughs> I want you to know this is entirely your fault. Okay. The next person that tells me I've got to see Ched Lasso. Ted Lasso, you yes, mean? Yes, whatever his name is. Chet Lasso or whatever it is. Okay, why would anybody think I would want to watch? Because it's not about the soccer. Okay. Because it, it's really not about the soccer. Guns? No. Boobs? No. Well, yes. Here and there. Are they European boobs? <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Well, there's a difference. There's a decided difference. <laughs> I've never noticed a difference. Okay. But I just... I mean, is there some good jokes? Is yes. Some... Yes. It's, it's very... It's very warm-hearted. It's very... It's very funny. The jokes are smart. It's... It's... You love the show Scrubs. It's the same... It's Bill Lawrence. It's the same creator. And it's that same sort of almost irreverent approach to um, sort of feel-good comedy. You would like it. I don't know. I, 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 I need to watch it, but I need to, I need to be drugged, kidnapped, and placed in a concrete box with nothing to see but that for a week. See, I'll tell you in what. In order to, to really... Typically when a show like this comes out, that literally everyone says you have to see it. It's one of the best shows on TV, if not of all time. I it, know I'm going to hate it. Usually I'm the same way. And I'll usually avoid it. I've still never seen an episode of Walking Dead, uh, Game of Thrones, uh, what's the Breaking Bad, Sons of Anarchy. I've not watched a single episode of any of those shows because when they get that certain level of hype, it just can't be worth the buildup. Ted Lasso's the exception. I fought it. We were... It was halfway into the second season before I ever watched the first episode, but I got hooked instantly. I don't know. I blame you because people keep asking me, have you watched? I just know I'm going to hate it. I don't know how. You know, it's kind of like a cigar that it wouldn't matter if it's the best cigar in the world. You don't like the guy. Yeah. <laughs> so you're probably not going to like the cigar. Yeah, I, I, but I, you really ought to try it. And, and I know that my recommendations to you don't mean much because kind of going back to the topic at hand historical fiction is my wheelhouse i am if if you give me a period piece i don't care what it's about i will watch it 
And I know that's really kind of far from home for you. But with Ted Lasso, t- thinking about your your viewpoint and what I know you've liked, you would like that show. I'll, I'll have to, at some point, get taken hostage and held at gunpoint and made watch an episode. So, also, Around the World and 80 Cigars, there and back again. This is from Cigar Journal. And this is talking about Nick Hammond's book, where he talks about his travels around the world smoking different cigars. Um, again, I, what's the hook? So, I was reading this article a bit, and I think I think the hook is not just... Oh, I was in Bangladesh and I smoked this cigar. Oh, I was in Kuala Lumpur and I smoked this cigar. It's a lot like something that we've talked about on the show in the past where the cigar shop, the cigar lounge, or or the cigar by extension, is the great equalizer. You know, garbage man sitting next to a a world-class surgeon sitting across from an unemployed guy who's also next to an attorney. You know, like it's just everyone's on equal footing and how many great people have you met just in this shop alone not even all of your all of your cigar smoking career that you wouldn't have met otherwise stories that you've heard people that you've talked to and i get the impression his book is basically these are some of the story over my travels over the, the these are the people i've met and the great common thread is that they shared a cigar Okay, I can get behind that. That being said, unlike the the movie, I don't think I'll pick this up. Yeah, I just I don't know. Now, if it was about you know, okay, within you know, in India, everybody smokes their cigars differently, or you know, in Great Britain, good etiquette for cigar is to do this, which you would never do in America, and things like that. Then I could probably get behind that. Well, but I yeah, I don't think that's the book it's going to be. If the if the um, if this book is driving Miss Daisy, the cigar is the car. Okay, I get you now. Well, anyway, I did want to mention because I do, you know, I do like the stuff like this. I do like when people go out on their own, and he is doing a crowdsourcing to do the second book. See, I'm surprised you appreciate crowdsourcing. I would think you would scream and buck at that about begging other people to give you money to do your project. No. The the most free market thing, democratic, most, I mean, absolutely. Hey, here's what I'm going to do. If more politicians had to crowdsource their tax revenue, we'd have a better country. <laughs> There's a lot Come to out for that. and make your case. Yeah. I mean, that's the good thing about crowdsourcing is they're going to make their case to me. This is why we need you. This is why we need it. I think politics should run this way. You know, we've talked about this. Well, I don't in, think in we theory, should they're never, supposed to. That's that's how campaign finance is supposed to work. We should never have a tax increase that is not a result of a referendum. And that, you know, that would be the perfect way to do it because then they got to come out and make their case. So, of course, I'd be in favor of crowdfunding. Oh. <laughs> no, but anyway, let's step away for a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about barbershop etiquette since we covered so much cigar etiquette and right. we got some new cigars and we're going to talk about cigar pricing. All right. We'll be back with that more after this. Welcome back to the Cigar Cast. This is one of your hosts, Shane, sitting across from the man who knows he's had enough coffee when he can thread a sewing machine while it's running, Mr. Trey Dedman. 
I'm about in. I'm about at that level today. <laughs> about a cup and a half off of that. Yeah. The uh, little man woke up early d- this morning after having not slept well the night before, and so yeah, I'm pretty much fifty percent caffeine at this point. Okay, so going to give the listeners a little inside the show. Do we talk about cigars prices or do we talk about barbershops first? Do you want to close with barbershop? Because I think I'm going to piss everybody off with my barbershop thoughts. You think so? I'm so? wondering if I'm going to need a palate cleanser. But I also stand by my thoughts, so I really don't care if people like me or I not. Feel like, I feel like it leads it. Let's, we can start with the cigar pricing and then lead in. Black Star Line Cigars. Mr. Fahrenheit getting national release at the PCA 2023. So we don't usually mention every little company that comes out of a cigar and starts trying to sell it at the show. Right. But the Black Star line hit at a good time because it refers to what I want to talk about in the article. And it also, it's a fireman. It supports fireman charities. It's kind of like firehouse subs. Right. And are firehouse subs nationwide? Yes, I think so. And all, where they support the families of firemen through the Ignite the Spirit charity. Um, and it's found in 2003, helped 750 families in need. But anyway, so this cigar is going to be a Connecticut broadleaf wrapper with a Dominican binder and fillers from Nicaragua and the Dominican Republic. It's being made at Tobacco La Serra La Isla. I don't know that I've ever heard of a... I don't know if I've heard of that factory before. I don't think I have either. I think, I, well, I've heard of it, but I couldn't tell you anything that comes out of that factory. And the company's producing 5,000 cigars in its initial batch, but it will be on an ongoing basis as regular production item up to this portfolio. So, 5,000 cigars. We talked about this last week. That's not, that's not a huge run. That's going to be... If, you know, if you're launching a, a new line... In an established brand, I think you can get away with an initial batch of 5,000. Launching a brand with 5,000 sticks is going to be a tough putt. Yeah, that's going to... Because if they do go over... It's the same thing that happens here all the time with certain cigars. The new one comes out, and everybody gets excited, and it comes in, and it sells out. And if we had 20 boxes of them, we could sell them. And by the time they finally get us back in, everybody's like, oh, yeah, I had that. It was good. Yeah, but they're but there's so much they're they're deep in the the new one that's doing that right. So it's it's real tough. Is it better if you're going to launch a cigar line like that to say, okay, I got five thousand boxes. I'm going to launch this in fifty shops. Five thousand cigars or five thousand cigars. So that's only twenty of going to five thousand. 250 boxes. So it's only 250 boxes. Is it best to say, okay, I got five lounges? You know, average average cigar order in here, we'd order five boxes and then order five boxes to back that up if it went good, and that would pretty well... So let's say anywhere from 30 to 50 lounges. Yeah. Is it best to do it that way, or is it best to get the name out there as wide as possible? You know, the cigar industry is, is interesting. You know, you look at... You look at a, a company like In-N-Out Burger or Whataburger. These are companies that started out small, made a name for themselves, and only franchised in a small geographical region, and then are slowly working towards na- national rollout. You don't see that in cigars. Uh, I think Crux might be the only example that comes to my mind where they very much just started... 
you know, kind of a driving distance from where they started and then slowly branched out. Yeah, I think if you're if you're if you're staring down a 250 bucks release, maybe you start with the southeast. Well, and do you kind of think about what your cigar resembles and see you know, okay, I mean, how in-depth can you get? Because at the show, it'd be interesting to sit down with them and them actually say, okay, are they going to say, yes, we want you to carry our cigars, please. How many boxes can we get you put down for? Or are they going to be, okay, tell us about your shop. Tell us what you sell. I tell us you, what goes on. I that way. I don't know. I was surprised how many people at the show were really good at that when we were there last year. I was surprised how many companies actually sat down and asked us, so tell us about the vibe of your shop. I haven't got to go there yet. Okay. I haven't got to be there. Tell us what it's like. Tell us what's your shop, what you've created here, what you want to create, what you're planning to, and let us see. And those are, ironically, the cigars that came to our humidor Right. were the people that really stopped and asked about that, that really stopped and talked to us about, hey, what's the vibe for... Now, nobody said, oh, well, I don't think my cigar will fit there and move right. on. And all. nobody did that. But... Um, but you know, I think if I was selling cigars, I'd have to do that. I'd try that. Just, just every every twentieth person, every every twentieth one, just say, hey, you know, your guys like soccer and Ted Lasso. They're probably not going to dig my cigars, and haulers or something like that. I, th- I think I because well, they're I, certainly not going to bring in the soccerers for suckers Toro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. You know, but I've I've had a great deal of success with that with house plans with selling plans to people is saying, uh, you know, what you do, what you want is not really what I do, and then they become willing to negotiate. Well, what do you mean? Well, you're not wanting a cost-effective house. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Well, you're not really open to my ideals about how to make this a cost-effective house. Oh, I can I can be you know, and, yeah, yeah. and it's kind of a technique to mold people around to where I want them to be. Yeah, I do think, though, like, here, you guys are not a big ring gauge shop. But there are some shops that are exclusively big ring gauge shops. And, you know, I think the difference is, you know, pretty much every cigar manufacturer knows you've got to have at least some big ring gauge offering because there are people out there that smoke that exclusively. So I think rather... Maybe more than just saying, no, we're not a good fit. Maybe we say, okay, well, this, let's get our foot in the door with a big ring gauge cigar because that fits your clientele. But let's also bring in this one so that you've got a little bit of variability. So if people get hot on that one, everybody else has something. I think you, you can tailor the order that way without having to outright tell somebody no. Well, and I guess that's probably the art of selling cigars more so than anything else. Yeah. And also another cigar coming up from Aficionado, a Partagas made in Miami. So this is going to be the first time in the history of non-Cuban Partaga brand that they've made one in Miami's little Havana neighborhood of the Titan de Bronze factory. So we had the Forged 8th Street. We both had it on the show. Mm-hmm. And it was made in the Titan de Bronze factory. Excellent cigar. Yeah. And this one, too, is... The Partagas de Bronze. Or is it Bronze or Bronze? It's Spanish for bronze. I don't know. I would say I would say Bronze. You're supposed to be the linguist amongst well, us. Well, it should, based on the way it's spelled, it should be Bronze, but I, I don't. So it's going to be available in only one size, the Grand Corona, measuring six and a quarter by 46. 
And it's going to be made, it's named in the honor of the factory of the Titan to Bronze Factory, covered in a Corojo seed wrapper and blended by product development manager Justin Andrews of STG. So, so what's, what's interesting is by going that far up the chain, they get into product development that oversees Cuban, uh, the Cuban brand as well as the North American release brands. So there could be a unique perspective on the blend for this that we're not used to from that company in this market. Okay, so does STG have Cuban factories? Because I thought all the Cuban, all the factories in Cuba were owned by the state. This says owner of the oh, non-Cuban yeah. Prodagas brand. Yeah, I'm, I misread that. Okay, well, I, I thought, yeah, that your theory is great, but I, but it's wrong at <laughs> <laughs> all. But um, another five thousand box release. This is a. These are boxes of ten, though, so you get. You know, five thousand box, uh, five thousand or five thousand boxes of fifty thousand cigars. Five hundred boxes. No, five thousand boxes of ten cigars. Oh, five thousand boxes, yeah, so not five thousand cigars. cigars. Okay, yeah. I so misread that as well. Here's the problem: they're going to retail for twenty two ninety nine each. And I'm going to jump over and also touch this Cohiba Riviera. I'm going to ju- go into another article right. about ending the other. Because the Cohiba Riviera to to debut in May is a full-time collection. And they're going to be... It's the purple box. It's a San Andreas wrapper. And it's the first time a San Andreas wrapper has been used on a Cohiba. It's also the first box press. But they're going to be 20 bucks a cigar. Yeah. Which, from Cohiba's not that, that outside the realm. But I've never had a Cohiba. I've had a $20 Cohiba. I did not think it was worth $20 by any no, stretch I, of the imagination. I don't think I've ever had a Cohiba that I liked, just outright. And I don't know. I know maybe one or two people that smoke Cohiba and none that smoke it regular. None that smoke it often enough to right. keep more than one box in the shop at any time. Right. So, here's the question. At what point do you price yourself out of the market? You know, we talked about how you start a cigar brand mm-hmm. and price point versus marketing. Because I firmly believe that you say, okay, this cigar is going to be a $20 cigar, regardless of how much it's costing you to make. I, I don't think that's the whole picture, though. You know, we we've talked many times, and we were we were kind of talking about this before the show that the the majority of the cost in a cigar is the labor, not the actual tobacco itself. Right. It's the labor. It's the box. It's the wrapper. It's the shipping. It's the it's yeah. it's everything but the tobacco. It it's the reason that the difference between a robusto and a gordo is seventy cents a stick at at retail. Right. So that that's what fifteen six cents at manufacturing. Well, so if you're making a cigar in a factory and you're making an eight dollar cigar, that cigar has to be produced for two dollars. Right. It's you produce it for two dollars, you sell it to the vendor for four dollars, the vendor sells it to the customer for eight dollars. Right. So if you got a twenty dollar cigar, so in the same factory utilizing the same shipping, the same guy making the boxes, the same guy making printing the labels. There can't be 
double and a half that amount of tobacco cost in that cigar. That that but, numbers don't line up. But I don't think it's all tobacco cost. I do think that's part of it. Uh, when was the last time you saw a special release that the box wasn't fancier? Which whether whether or not that's that's. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's pretty on on par with the rest of their. Stuff. It looks but like every not, other Cohiba box except it's purple. Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll give you that one then. <laughs> um, but no, you know, from one factory to the next, from one field to the next, like there are variances in the quality of tobacco that's given. It's the reason that the Opus X is so. It's part of the reason why it's it's sought after and exclusive and also expensive is the fact that it's one particular field that grows a certain type of tobacco at a certain quality continuously. So I, I do think that tobacco... Now, whether or not tobacco cost makes up a difference of $3 at the manufacturer level is you know, you're going to be paying your more skilled rollers. So there's going to be a, a, a higher cost per stick there, I would feel like. But the, the rolling labor is so insignificant. Even if you pay twice what you pay, that's still right. not... No, I'm not saying it makes up the full thing, but I do think, you know, if you're, if you're aging the tobacco uh, before you roll it into cigars, there's certain warehouse costs that have to be factored in. You know, there... You know, and, and also the fact that if this is, a, you know, a section of your field that continuously produces higher-grade tobacco, then, it's, then it becomes a supply and demand. You know, how much of this tobacco do we have that we can roll into cigars, and what is that going to take from our production of other cigars? I, 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 again, maybe not to get all the way up to 20 bucks from 8 but I do think there's, I do think there's some room here where a different blends, you know, Cameroon tobacco comes from one farm in Cameroon that's owned by one family. You know, if they decide to price you out, there's nothing you can do. Or, you know, there's certain price fixing. There's, and it's also a harder leaf to work with. So you've got more overrun, more wastage. You know, so right. all of those things factor in too. So if you're using a Rosado wrapper, which again, very delicate, very hard to work with, Number one, you're going to pay people who have the skills to be able to handle it. Number two, you're going to have more waste, so you're going to have to buy more raw material that doesn't end up in the cigar whose price has to be reflective of that. Well, don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining. It is perfectly okay with me if Cohiba said, this cigar, yes, we could sell it on the open market for 12 bucks a stick, but it's got the Cohiba name on it, and we know people are willing to pay $20 for it, and we're going to sell it for $12. Well, and Wouldn't I'm, bother me at all. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure there is some component of that. You know, we talk about brands that are consistently at the top of the market con- compared to their competitors, Caldwell being one of them, uh, Placencia, you know, Padron. There's a certain point at which the quality of your blends and your quality of your of your product allows you to, you know, charge a premium for your product. So I think that definitely does factor in here, uh, more so than I think you let on. Okay, I'll, I'll concede. I'll in, it's interesting. It's an interesting thought. I wanted to have that conversation because I, I mean, if if you can get me, you know, I had a guy one time call me, and he was trying to get me to sell my plans on his website, and he his website was called Hundred Dollar House Plans, and I said, why would I sell my product cheaper? And he said, so you can sell more of them. Okay, but it don't scale. It's the same amount of work. 
Right. And you're wanting me to undercut my own price, not to mention give you a taste. Yeah. I said, you're out of your mind. No, 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 that's not the way. This is what it's like. Uh, and I quickly explained to him that he and I wouldn't be doing business. Well, I mean, but there is there there is some some merit to that approach. You know, you can you can sell one piece of furniture at you know a, a custom cabinetry place here in town for a thousand bucks, or you can sell ten pieces of IKEA flat pack furniture for a hundred bucks. And you make the same amount of money if your margins stay the same. No, you don't. Because you got to service 10 customers as opposed to one. Well, except, but it also depends on your business model. Because how much, like, you sit down with each one of your customers and you walk through specific needs and you did. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of face to face. You do have to work with your customers, but in a method like this, where you draw it once and whoever wants to pay for it can pay for it and you don't have to tweak it. You don't have to worry about it. You don't even interface with the customers. It becomes, it could potentially become for someone who doesn't maybe have the same, uh, pride in their work. Pride in their work. Yeah. Yeah. For some, for somebody that's okay delivering a generic product, mm-hmm. delivering an IKEA to to further your example. Yeah. It's probably okay, but I'm just I, I never I'm not yeah. that guy. No, and and I get that, but that doesn't make his model wrong because it for the right person who does what you do, who just wants to put the same plan in his, in front of as many people as possible and not have to, you know, Ronco approach to set it and forget it, it, it could be profitable. Maybe not ever as profitable as somebody who takes the personalized approach, but... Well, moving forward, I do want to talk about this Art of Manliness article. We hadn't done an Art of Manliness article in a couple of weeks. A guide to barbershop etiquette. So after all of our etiquette talk last week about cigar shops... I got to thinking about what other places do you go that there's etiquette? Yeah. We probably should do an etiquette series of different places you go. You know, there's certain etiquette in restaurants. Yeah. And I'll, do you send your food back? Do you not? Do you, you know, what, what is the etiquette in restaurants? We probably could do a, a thing on that. But this is another bastion of manliness, right. barbershop. This is one of those things, you know, barbershop, I feel like, has multiple definitions these days. You know, when you think of a barbershop, the first place my head goes is Mayberry. Right. And was it was it Ralph? Floyd. Floyd. I was way off. Yeah. And so, you know, Floyd always dreamt of the two-chair barbershop. It, you know, but that's, you think about the guys sitting around, you know, talking about the news of the town, sharing wisdom, waiting their turn for, you know, that's. But then we also have these places in town now that call themselves barbershop. But they're really just great clips with better furniture. Right. They're just a. They're just a. They're running the numbers. They're they're the hundred dollar home plan model. Exactly. And I, when so when I'm talking about barbershop etiquette, I'm talking about a true barbershop. I'm talking about somewhere where there's a master barber behind the wheel. There's not a guy that graduated from Ringler, Ringling Barber and Clown. That there's a guy up there that actually is a hair, you know, is a barber. Yeah. And he has a guy in the chair next to him that's learning to be a barber. You know, there used to be a true barber shop beside my office. And my barber was there, and I walked in one day to get a haircut. He said, hey, Shane, I think Ricky here is ready to cut your hair. Because I have a difficult head of hair to cut. Right. 
So I think Ricky here is here to, ready to cut your hair. I'm glad you said that because that's going to come up later. I'll watch you close. I'll watch him closely. I'll pay attention to it, but I want him to have experience cutting your kind of hair. Would you mind if he cut your hair today? And I said, sure. Yeah. Further, and that's the kind of people. That's the barber shop I'm talking about. Right. Where the guys are sitting there and they're bringing up the next generation of barber and things like that. So that's that's the definitive barbershop of which I speak here. Okay. I, I thought it was important to set that definition at the yes. outset. So um, I'm just going to hit the high points. Be punctual. You How know, many times in my life do I rave about being on time? What's interesting about that to me is in terms of the true barbershop that we're talking about, I've never met one that takes appointments. It's always first come, first serve. Oh, mine in Columbia, you had to have an appointment or you wouldn't get in. Cause oh, okay. Because he, he said, I'm going to cut this many heads of hair a day, and that's it. And he was a master barber, and everybody was willing to schedule yeah. for that. So yeah. I think that's kind of kind of depends on how many, the population of the town. Yeah. And how many master barbers there are. You know, out there where you live, there's probably more master barbers per capita than there is in Columbia. Probably so, but we've also got the sport clips, the great clips, the the places that I would say, because I also think not as many people are seeking out these kinds of places anymore. It's true. It, I, I think we've got the Walmart generation coming out that just wants quick, dirty, just get me in and out and cheap. Yeah, there's a lot of people that have never had a true barber's treatment. Right. Who, who the, and hey, if you never have it, you never miss it. Yeah. Although, uh, so I've been to the one in, in our town that's just right down the road from the cigar shop. And it was fine. The haircut wasn't great. You know, it was, I wasn't working for the owner or I wasn't getting my haircut by the owner of the shop. But, you know, it, it, was, it was fine. But, um, yeah, I don't think a, a whole lot of people are just looking for that true barber experience. Well, skipping ahead on the list, because the next couple ones are just about making appointments and all that. Put away your phone. This, I think, is key. If I was a barber and somebody wanted to look at their phone while I was cutting their hair, I would throw them out of my chair, out of my shop, into the street, and hopefully get them hit by a dump truck. I think, you know, and maybe I'm taking this one a little bit personally, but, you know, if you've ever... Especially around here. Now, I know you've got your set place that you go and, and whatever, but if you've ever tried to get a haircut in during the week, especially if you try to go after work, it, good luck. It's not going to happen. You can't get an appointment because they, they fill up or, you know, and the walk-ins don't. You, so what I've started doing in order to get in to the, the person that I've been going to for now seven years is because she doesn't take appointments. So I have to go in the middle of the day. And if my phone, if my work phone goes off, I need to at least know what's happening. Okay, there's a difference, though, in your phone going off and saying, hey, I'm sorry, I got to take that, and sitting on your phone playing Tetris while the barber's trying to cut your hair. Yes. And I think that's what they're referring to here is don't be surfing Facebook. Don't be updating your, you know, your Twitter feed at the, sh- at the barbershop getting a haircut. Right. Don't be doing none of that junk. Yeah. Actually, you know, be engaged with the barber. And then if you get the call that's, you know, nanny 911, you can answer that. So, yeah. And the barber will understand that. But yeah. I think that's the bigger point is don't be distracted by your phone during the haircut. Yeah. Um, another really good one here. 
don't put product in your hair before your haircut. Yeah, that's a especially for guys where you know so much of the the style and design of what your haircut looks like comes from the product you put in it. Like you could you could cut your hair three different ways and still make it look the same. Well, you know, my, my haircut day is pretty regimented. I know that at 10 o'clock is when I'm going to get my haircut. I get a shower before I leave the house. And then after my haircut, I have them wash my hair. Yeah. And all, because there's always extra hair hanging out and oh, things yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. If, so, if, you've, if you can't go home and shower right after the haircut, having them wash your hair after they're done is, uh, is, is the only way to get through the rest of the day without looking like you've got chicken pox. Right. Be politely assertive when you see a problem with your haircut. And I think this is this is something that's really important. If you're getting a haircut and you don't feel like it's going the way it should be going, you need to tell them. Yeah. You I, don't need to wait till it's done and complain afterwards. I, I had this experience when I had just moved to Atlanta. I was letting my hair grow out at the time, but it needed to be cleaned up a little bit. So I go to a sport clips because it was what was nearby and available and it it's funny how you know you often talk about how you've got that kind of internal barometer that you run a lot of things in your life against before you decide i walk in and there's this one woman i go please don't let her be the next up right of course she was i mean we're talking mimi bobeck makeup you know flock of seagulls haircut like right Clearly, really, and just space cadet. Name Karen. Oh. <laughs> or something. And so she, I get in the chair, and she goes, what are we doing? And I said, I'm growing it out. I just want it cleaned up. Okay? And then she gets going, and she's, you know, she's trimming up the back, getting the neck cleaned up and all that stuff. Next thing I know, she grabs her scissors, and she takes probably a half an inch off the, off the front of my head. And I went... And I had to whoa 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 whoa. I no, I said I'm I'm or she did a couple because I was I was. It took me a minute to realize how much right. she was taking off. And she was like, "How do you want to?" She asked me a question. I was like, I, "No no, what are you what are you doing?" I'm, and then she accused me of like, "Well, why did you let me start cutting it?" I was like, "I told you I was cutting it." And she was like, "You didn't tell me that." What did you think I said? <laughs> When I asked how I, you know, it was, it was one of those, like, I was very polite. I was very, but it was just, it's really hard in the moment because I think you and I can both agree. Cutting hair is a skill. Oh, absolutely. I don't know. So as the layman sitting in the chair, I can recognize when things are, are a little different, but it's hard to know what's happening in the moment. It's, it's really hard to call a stop when, when in the middle of the process. Because most of the time, by the time you realize there's a problem, it's too late to go back. Right. And that, that's one of the things is stop them before. Don't mm. get to the end of a bad haircut and come and say, oh, I kind of knew as it was going on, this was going to be bad. Then yeah. it's your own fault. Yeah. Because you, you can step in and you can change that if you will. Um, the last thing is tip generously. Okay, I disagree with this. I knew I know you do. My, I'm not. I'm first and foremost. I think tipping in this country is out of control. I agree with that. And I'm not. You know, I don't tip Sonic waitresses. I don't tip at buffets. If I'm going to eat at a buffet, I'm not tipping. All you're doing is bringing me my drink, and I'll. And a lot of times, I have to go get that myself. 
Um, and I'm not tipping my barber. I feel like he builds into his price what the haircut should cost. I, I, don't, I don't understand why he wouldn't. You're not a tattoo guy. But it's generally considered industry practice that you tip your tattoo artist as well. If you were going to get a tattoo, is that someone that you feel like would deserve a tip? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'm paying him to do a job. I expect him to do it well. And I've already thoroughly vetted him. You know, before I let somebody put something permanent on my body utilizing needles and ink, you can bet Mm -hmm. I'm going to know a lot about them. Yeah, so, but I think, no. but there's a, there's a, even, even from, if you take two very good barbers or very good tattoo artists or very good whatever, there, there's still a certain appreciation for, for going above and beyond and doing better than the bare minimum. You know, this, and you admitted yourself earlier, your hair is difficult to cut. So a, an extra couple of bucks for getting it right, I think goes a long way. No. If yes, my hair is difficult to cut, but I assume the barber looks at the scalps of his clientele as a whole. And okay, I've got twenty guys that are going to be a bowl cut, and I got some buzz cuts, and I've and I'm going to make a lot of money. You know, my plans. I don't charge different price per square foot depending on the difficulty of plant. No, I charge the same per square foot. And if I have a plan that's low square foot and high difficulty and I don't make as much money on it, I know that's going to balance out over the course of my plans. I wouldn't expect somebody to tip my house plan skills. Even though I go far above and beyond, I wouldn't expect it. I I price my product fairly. Yeah, but I don't think there's any... The the barber, I I have no problem tipping. In fact, I tip very well. My my haircut on paper is $22 or something. I usually just hand her 30 and walk out the door. Yeah, see, I'm I'm just I'm, I'm not in and it's, you know even tipping in restaurants because at the same because my hair is difficult to cut too and I recognize that and I've found one person in my life that I can consistently guarantee that I'm going to get a good haircut. She remembers me. She rem- even though I only go I only get a haircut about once every two or three months, and I know she remembers me. She remembers how I like it. She, and that extra little bit of money. That, that tip guarantees that she'll be happy when I walk through the door. So whatever else is going on, okay, I'm going to make some change right now. And it changes the paradigm of the whole thing. No matter what else is going on, how bad that day was, I've done my part to set up that this is going to be a good interaction. I'm not tipping for the haircut that I just got. I'm tipping for the next one. Yeah, so yeah, I'm, I'm against it. I'm absolutely against it. It's kind of like tipping at a restaurant. We had this discussion before we came here. I'm not going to tip at a restaurant a percentage of the bill. I don't do it. I tip a, I tip a good waiter about five bucks. Don't care if I paid a hundred dollars for the meal or 20 bucks for the meal. I'll tip a good waiter about five bucks because the waiters conducting the same labor, regardless of the amount of food that they, that they charge for on paper. Yes. But if we're con- if we're comparing, you know, let's say, you and your wife go out to a Mexican restaurant. You guys aren't going to order drinks. You're going to order an entree each, maybe some queso for the table. You're going to have a $25 bill. Right. And so my, now, food costs have gone way up in the last little bit. And so my rule used to be, if it was just a couple, it was 20% or 
five bucks. So, you know, for the longest time, we'd go out to Mexican food, and the bill would be $18. And I would just go ahead and round up. I would just tip the full five, even though that was more than 20%. And that's kind of been my rule, though now, good luck eating out for less than 25 bucks with two people. And, um, but when you get into, like, the Ruth's Chris, let's not even go that far. Let's go Maggiano's, kind of the chain but nicer. You have higher or... In general, the clientele has higher expectations of the experience. And it's so even though the effort they're the work they're doing is the same, there's a certain degree of 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 expectations of higher professionalism, the experience being better, and I think that's why the the tip goes up variable to the cost of the menu items. See, all I expect from my waiter is keep my drink full get my food there while it's hot i don't need them to sing i don't need them to dance i don't need them to suggest i don't need them to to converse i just want them get me my food while it's hot don't bring it out to me cold and keep my drink full that's it and if i go to a restaurant and i know okay i'm really thirsty i help them out bring me a tea and a water because i know i'm probably gonna suck the tea down pretty quick before they get it back around to my table or like my waitress at Buffalo Wild Wings. She always just brings me two teas to start with. Yeah. Because she knows it's not going to melt down before I get the other one drunk. Yeah, I've always, I've gotten to where oftentimes I'll do that. Bring me two waters. And, and, and they, they always look confused. Like, look, I'm a thirsty dude. <laughs> I'm going to go through two in the time it'll take you to get back around to fill one up. Right. Help me help you help me. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, but no, I don't. I mean, I do have an issue with the way servers are paid in this country and the, and the, the tip-based economy that, that you know, is so pervasive. I do have an issue with that. But the system being what the system is, I'm, I'm, I'm still going to play the game. Yeah. Say, I'm not going to play the game. It's my money. It's my decision. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play it my way. And I'll, I'm just not going to... And if and if a server is bad, I have no problem walking out without tipping them. If I sit there and my drink's empty and my food gets there and it's cold, it's obviously been sitting there or it's dried out because it's sat under the heating lamp for too long, or heaven forbid they don't write down my order. If okay, here's the deal: if you don't write down my order, it better be perfect. If you get anything wrong, you're out. If you write down my order and you get something wrong, I'll give you a little leeway. Okay, it's busy, it's a little heavy, it's a little hectic, but at least they tried. But also, a lot of what you're talking about, the food getting out there when it's still hot, you know, the, the correctness of the order, a lot of times that'll come down to the kitchen. Oftentimes that has nothing to do with the server. Having worked in the food service industry a long time, um, when I was all through college, and even a little bit after the fact, you know... It, the, the best thing you can do as a server when, when food comes out wrong is notice it before the customer does. Absolutely. Is this is the food they made. They, for, they put onions in it, even though you said no onions. I'm going to have them, but I wanted to get everybody's food out, blah, 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 whatever. That's a good way to, ins- you know, so there are, there are things that you can determine whether or not it's the server's fault or the, uh, or the, or the kitchen's fault. Well, I also think tip sharing is ruining restaurant it service. Is. I think tip sharing is absolutely destroying restaurants. You know, I used to work, my, my first restaurant job was at a very slow restaurant. It was a chain barbecue place in Texas. Like, who thought that was a good idea? 
And we were very slow. Some nights you wouldn't have drinks. And so we didn't expect, I, I moved into bartending there and I never expected to tip out, especially even on our, you know, during the week, maybe one or two drinks per person. If it's a beer, I'm not expecting much, if, if anything. Now I'm hearing like the host, the busboy, the kitchen, even in some cases. No, no, absolutely not. But they're got all of the good servers, and this is this is how, as a consumer, we get, you'll notice if there's a lot of turnover in servers, or if or if you just constantly see um, you know help wanted signs in the window. Oftentimes, it can come down to bad management and and that tip-out practice. And what's going to happen is the good ones are going to go to the restaurants where they don't do that stuff. Sure, because the good one, well, inevitably what happens, and, and we're going to wrap this topic up because we kind of ran on about it, but inevitably what happens is you get a good server and they get tipped well, but their tips go to subsidize all the bad servers. Right. And then the good server leaves and the bad server gets their buddy and eventually you have a restaurant full of bad servers and it has to go out of business. Yeah. I mean, oh, that's I guess, the oh, danger of tip sharing. You're talking about tip pooling, I think. Yeah, tip pooling, whatever yeah, it is. gotcha. Because tip sharing is a different where every server like gives a little bit to the host, the bus boys, the things, the people that make them more efficient at their job as just because they're getting tipped on the machine working as as possible. But tip pooling, yeah, I'm a I'm a really bad. I I, I don't like tip pooling either. Well, tell me about your Lancero. You know, it was fine. It was it. It actually drew well, which is rare for a lancer. Worth the money? Yeah. Worth nine bucks. Yeah. I I still, you know, it's it's a medium-bodied offering from them. I, I didn't ever quite get to medium. It it smoked fast, which I guess I shouldn't be surprised at. But, yeah, it just, I would smoke another one, but I'm not going to run in there and, and trip over my, my own feet to get another one. I'd it say, didn't leave you wanting more. Yeah. I would say it's an even five. Okay, that's a fair that's a fair assessment. That's probably where I would have that cigar somewhere in there. The Suave is a six. It's deceptively mild, but it's very complex. It's flavorful. It's rich. The construction is excellent. The price at like twelve bucks is ideal for that. Yeah, it's just a great stick. It's understandable how that being their first brand LFD built mm-hmm. the empire they have. So the Suave is a six all day long in my book. Awesome. Well, how do they get a hold of us, Trey? You can reach us at facebook.com slash the cigarcast. We're on Instagram and Twitter at the cigarcast and email info at the cigarcast.com. Well, thank you everybody for listening this week. Until next week, have a great cigar and think well of us.